Hello, and welcome to this audio edition of Philip Huscher's program notes for upcoming concerts by the Chicago Symphony Orchestra. I'm Rich Caparella, and concerts by the CSO on Thursday, March 23rd through Sunday, the 26th, feature guest conductor Thomas Wilkins and principal clarinet of the orchestra, Stephen Williamson. The program includes a suite from the ballet Hiawatha by Samuel Coleridge-Taylor, Aaron Copeland's clarinet concerto, and after intermission, Antonine Vorjak's From the New World, the symphony number nine. And here are program notes by Philip Husher on a suite from Samuel Coleridge-Taylor's Hiawatha. The suite lasts about 15 minutes. For Samuel Coleridge-Taylor, the discovery of Henry Wadsworth Longfellow's epic poem, The Song of Hiawatha, opened a window into a world he would explore throughout his composing career, much as Jean Sibelius's life's work was set in place when he first read The Kalevala. Coleridge-Taylor's cycle of Hiawatha works is one of music's true global creations, with texts by the popular American poet that was itself based on folktales of the Ojibwe, Anishinaabe, and Dakota peoples and set to music by a black composer who was the son of a white English woman and a medical student from Sierra Leone who met in London. Chicago was one of the first American cities to hear Coleridge-Taylor's music. Theodore Thomas, who founded the Chicago Symphony Orchestra in 1891 and was famous for his adventuresome programming, led the big tenor aria from Hiawatha's wedding feast during the orchestra's ninth season in January 1900. By way of introduction, the week before, the Chicago Tribune reported that Mr. Coleridge-Taylor is a young Negro composer residing in England who has claimed the attention first of British musicians and latterly of the musical world at large by reason of his extraordinary gifts as a composer. As the paper pointed out, Samuel had already produced a long list of works, including a clarinet quintet that was introduced to Germany by the great violinist Josef Joachim, the man who premiered Brahms' violin concerto. Coleridge-Taylor was just 25 years old. For Coleridge-Taylor, the idea of writing music inspired by Longfellow's poem may have been sparked by the London premiere in June 1894 of Dvorak's New World Symphony with its Hiawatha subtext. Coleridge-Taylor started small, with sketches, literally. In 1896, he composed his Hiawatha sketches for violin and piano based on three quotations from Longfellow. His first major Longfellow score, Hiawatha's Wedding Feast, a full cantata for chorus and tenor soloist composed in 1898, drew exceptional attention and advanced publicity. Sir Arthur Sullivan of Gilbert and Sullivan fame told Coleridge-Taylor, I'm always an ill man now, my boy, but I'm coming to hear your music tonight even if I have to be carried. Coleridge-Taylor already had the endorsement of Sir Edward Elgar, who suggested him for a commission from London's Three Choirs Festival. I wish, wish, wish you would ask Coleridge-Taylor to do it, Elgar said when he had to decline the commission. He still wants recognition, and he is far and away the cleverest fellow going amongst the young men. Coleridge-Taylor's work, an orchestral ballad, was given its U.S. premiere by Thomas and the Chicago Symphony in February 1903. But it was the Longfellow theme that made Coleridge-Taylor's name. He quickly followed Hiawatha's wedding feast with The Death of Minnehaha, another cantata, in 1899, an independent overture that same year, and Hiawatha's Departure, a third cantata in 1900. 
the three cantatas were performed together as scenes from the Song of Hiawatha, a full evening of music in London's Royal Albert Hall in 1900. The Chicago Tribune ran a dispatch from its London correspondent calling it the musical sensation of the London season. The paper said that the composer had married an Englishwoman and become the father of a son. He has followed Wagner's example of naming his firstborn after one of his heroes, and the boy will go through life to the name of Hiawatha Coleridge-Taylor. A photo of the composer was headed, New Idol of London Music World. Twenty-four years later, it was Hiawatha himself, now a promising musician, who conducted a production in Royal Albert Hall of his father's Hiawatha trilogy with costumes, dancing, and scenery. The music performed at this week's concerts is something of a footnote to the Hiawatha saga, and yet it represents the essence of Coleridge-Taylor's Longfellow output. In 1912, the year of his untimely death, Coleridge Taylor was approached by a producer who wanted to dramatize Hiawatha's wedding feast at the Coliseum. Though that plan never materialized, Coleridge Taylor did begin work on the piano score for a ballet based on the poem. The young conductor Thomas Beecham was said to be interested in presenting it. The score was still unorchestrated and possibly unfinished when Coleridge Taylor suddenly died that September. It was published in 1919, orchestrated by Percy Fletcher, the musical director of His Majesty's Theatre. Fletcher later made an orchestral suite from the Minnehaha score. At these concerts, we hear four sections from the ballet suite. The Wooing portrays Hiawatha's introduction to Minnehaha from the Dakota tribe, a match designed to put an end to tribal warfare. The subsequent Marriage Feast is a minor mode scherzo with a brief trio in the major mode, the short, highly descriptive bird scene and the lively conjurer's dance that follow are drawn from incidental episodes in Longfellow's poem involving the handsome Pau Puk Kiwis, who had already made an appearance in the third movement of Dvorak's New World Symphony. A few footnotes on the composer's brief career. Coleridge Taylor did not visit Chicago on his first trip to this country in 1904, but he enjoyed great success on his first American venture. He had been warned that he might encounter discrimination. I can assure you that no one will be able to stop me from paying you my long-deferred visit, he wrote to his sponsor. As for prejudice, I am well prepared for it. Surely that which you and many others have lived in for so many years will not quite kill me. I am a great believer in my race, and I never lose an opportunity of letting my white friends here know it. Coleridge Taylor was treated like visiting royalty in the United States. President Theodore Roosevelt invited him to the White House, and he returned to this country in 1906 and 1910 when he toured with the black singer Harry Burley, whose tenor voice had such a profound effect on Dvorak as he composed his New World Symphony. Coleridge Taylor quickly became a staple of American culture. A group of black singers in Washington, D.C. founded the Coleridge Taylor Choral Society. Public schools in Baltimore and Louisville were named for him. Coleridge Taylor's last score is a violin concerto written for Maud Powell, the Illinois native who had made her debut under Theodore Thomas in 1885 and played with him and the Chicago Orchestra at the World's Columbian Exposition in 1893. 
Coleridge-Taylor died three months after the premiere at the age of 37, scarcely older than Mozart at the time of his premature death. It is impossible to know how Coleridge-Taylor's flourishing career might have continued. He was buried in Brandon Hill Cemetery in London. Four measures from Hiawatha are inscribed on his tombstone, along with a tribute from his close friend, the poet Alfred Noyes. Too young to die, his great simplicity, his happy courage in an alien world, his gentleness made all that knew him love him. Program notes by Philip Husher on a suite from the ballet Hiawatha by Samuel Coleridge Taylor. And now on to Aaron Copland's clarinet concerto, a work lasting about 17 minutes. Benny Goodman's parents, immigrants from Eastern Europe, met in Baltimore and moved to Chicago in 1902, settling in the Maxwell Street area. Seven years later, their ninth child, a son named Benjamin David, but soon called Benny, was born. Benny joined the band at the neighborhood Kehala Jacob Synagogue and later played in the Boys Club Band at Jane Addams Hull House. His father signed him up for clarinet lessons with Franz Schupp, who taught at the Chicago Musical College, so that he would get some serious training. But Benny naturally gravitated to the world of jazz. At the age of 14, he was a professional jazz musician, earning more in a night than his father did in a week. But Goodman did not forget the classics. In 1935, the year his historic performances at the Palomar Ballroom in Los Angeles inaugurated his reign as the King of Swing, he played Mozart's clarinet quintet in a private performance at the home of record producer John Hammond. Three years later, he recorded the work with the Budapest String Quartet. Later that year, he gave a non-jazz solo recital at New York's Town Hall. At the same time that Goodman's interest in classical music was taking wing, the serious young American composer Aaron Copland was drawn, in turn, to jazz. In his 1936 course at New York's New School, What to Listen for in Music, Copland talked about jazz bands and the importance of Duke Ellington, and his 1938 article praised Benny Goodman's recent records. Over the next few years, while Copland became famous for his all-American ballets Billy the Kid, Rodeo, and Appalachian Spring, Goodman started to commission new works from the most important composers of the day. He began with Béla Bartók, whose contrasts became an immediate chamber music landmark, and continued by asking Darius Millot and Paul Hindemith to write concertos for him. By the time he turned to Copland early in 1946, requesting another concerto, these two men were among the biggest names in American music. Goodman, acclaimed, and uniquely so at the time, for his success in the diverse worlds of jazz, pop, and the classics, and Copland, our national composer in all but official title, Virgil Thompson, called him the president of American music. These two famous men got on well enough, but not famously. Goodman later wrote about a little fracas over the cadenza Copland composed, and Copland said that Benny was surprisingly dull company. They had few discussions about the new piece, either up front or while it was being composed. As Copland recalled, he assumed that since I was writing a work for him, I'd know more or less what he would like to play. Apparently, Copland did although Goodman asked him to cut out a few high notes and to rewrite the closing of the first movement to give the soloist a moment's rest before plunging into the cadenza, the so-called fracas Goodman later mentioned. The concerto was a modest success. 
Copeland recalled that European audiences were initially more receptive than those in America, and like many works written for high-profile clients, it took time to prove that it would outlive its original cast. It enjoyed a second life in 1951 as the score for Jerome Robbins' ballet The Pied Piper. Leonard Bernstein, who normally was a great interpreter and champion of Copland's music, said the first movement sounded too much like Strauss, Richard, not Johann, and called the cadenza cute but arbitrary. But Stravinsky, who could be a very tough critic, wrote to Copland to tell him how much he loved Stravinsky's word, the concerto, and Alberto Ginastera said he thought it represented the condensed voices of a whole country. There are two movements divided by the cadenza. The opening movement is, in Copland's words, a languid song form. The cadenza unconventionally introduces melodic material yet to come in the second movement rather than developing music already heard. The cadenza is written fairly close to the way I wanted it, Copland explained, but it is free within reason. After all, it and the movement that follows are in the jazz idiom. It is not ad lib, as in cadenzas of many traditional concertos. I always felt there was enough room for interpretation even when everything was written out. The second movement is an unconscious fusion of North and South American popular music. Charleston rhythms, boogie-woogie, and Brazilian folk tunes. Copland began the score while on a lecture tour of Latin America. The instrumentation being clarinet with strings, harp, and piano, I did not have a large battery of percussion to achieve jazzy effects, so I used slapping basses and whacking harp sounds to simulate them. Copland ends with a big solo glissando as strikingly used as the one that opens Gershwin's Rhapsody in Blue. At that point in Robin's ballet, the dancers dash across the stage toward the soloist and fall at his feet in a wave. Program notes by Philip Husher on Aaron Copland's Clarinet Concerto. And now on to Antonin Vorjak's Symphony No. 9 from the New World, a work lasting about 40 minutes. Let's start with Mrs. Jeanette Thurber, the wife of a New York millionaire wholesale grocer and a self-appointed cultural maven who abandoned her English-language opera company after putting a serious dent in her husband's fortune to foster an American school of composition. Mrs. Thurber contacted Antonine Vorjak in June of 1891 with her proposal. She wanted the famous Czech composer to move to America become the director of the National Conservatory of Music, where he would teach composition and instrumentation for an annual salary of $15,000, serve as a figurehead for her new cause, and in his spare time write a number of new works, including an opera based on Longfellow's The Song of Hiawatha. Oddly enough, Vorjak agreed. As soon as the SS Sala completed the Atlantic crossing the composer had dreaded, Dvorak found himself an instant celebrity. He, in turn, became a keen observer of American life. When he wasn't teaching or conducting the conservatory choir and orchestra, Dvorak explored New York. By day, he walked in Central Park to talk to the pigeons, dropped by Lower East Side cafes where other Central Europeans like to hang out. At night, he visited assorted watering holes. One night, he drank the distinguished critic James Hunnaker under the table. He loved to check out the ocean liners along the wharves and clock the trains as their locomotives roared into the city stations. And with Mrs. Thurber on his arm, he even 
attended Buffalo Bill's Wild West show. But how much of America's musical tradition he absorbed is another question altogether. The question, in fact, was raised with the first major work Dvorak wrote in America, his Ninth Symphony, which came to be known as From the New World. Dvorak began sketching his E minor symphony only three months after he arrived at the dock in Hoboken. He was always meticulous about dating his manuscripts both at the beginning and at the end of a piece, and the pages of the symphony tell us that he worked from January 10th until May 24th, 1893. And while he was writing his Ninth Symphony, he remarked, The influence of America can be felt by anyone who has a nose. We can excuse Dvorak's strangely mixed metaphors, but we can't be so lenient with the musical implications. This is where the picture begins to blur. There is no question that Dvorak was seriously interested in music of Native Americans and African Americans. We know that he often invited Harry T. Burley, a gifted young black singer, to perform spirituals for him. But during his first year in the New World, Dvorak made a number of comments that virtually guaranteed the acclamation of his new symphony as a genuine and musical evocation of America and started lots of high-handed talk about the use of spirituals and Indian songs in a symphony. When, just before the first performance in December 1893, Dvorak tacked on that title from the New World, he continued the controversy. It's difficult to determine the extent of the American influence on Dvorak, but it's fairly easy to lay to rest a couple of myths. The confusion centers mainly on Dvorak's use of the pentatonic scale and one especially attractive tune. The first item can be quickly dismissed. The pentatonic scale, a five-note scale without half notes, best visualized as the black notes on the keyboard, colors many of Dvorak's themes here and was thought to duplicate the sound of Native American melodies. But it is also indigenous to folk music worldwide and popped up frequently in Dvorak's music before he ever crossed the Atlantic. The big tune is the one many listeners know as Going Home, the gorgeous English horn melody of the second movement, and it is still often said to be a spiritual. It may in fact have been influenced by spirituals. We know that Dvorak ultimately picked the English horn because it reminded him of Burley's voice, but the tune is Dvorak's, and the words were later added by one of his students who adapted the music as a spiritual. The rest can be reduced to hot air. Dvorak, with the best of intentions, spoke in glowing terms about the spiritual, tender, passionate, melancholy, solemn, ideal material for a national melodic style. But he had used similar words earlier to describe Scottish and Irish folk songs during his visits to Britain. And although he was evidently impressed by the American Indian songs he first heard in Spillville, Iowa during the summer of 1893, after he had finished the Ninth Symphony, incidentally, he easily confused this music with that of African Americans and said as much in an interview with the New York Herald. Eventually, Dvorak modified his stance a bit. In 1900, he wrote to a conductor who had programmed the New World Symphony, "'Leave out the nonsense about my having made use of American melodies. I have only composed in the spirit of such American national melodies.'" 
He later referred to all his works written in America as genuine bohemian music and said that the title of his Ninth Symphony was only meant to signify impressions and greetings from the New World, a musical postcard to the folks back home. And so it all comes down to the music. To many concertgoers, this symphony is so familiar and welcoming that it resists explanation. There are, however, a few highlights worth noting. The formal hallmarks of the piece are the use of a motto theme, that vigorous horn call that charges up and down the E minor triad in all four movements, and the reappearance of earlier themes like relatives at a family reunion in the finale. Neither idea is the least bit novel, but both are beautifully handled. The first movement begins in a melancholy mood in which some listeners find conclusive evidence of Dvorak's homesickness, but that is quickly shattered by the vaulting horn theme. Later, a gentle tune may, as many insist, suggest Swing Low, Sweet Chariot, but there is no evidence in the music or elsewhere to confirm its use. The first movement ends decisively in E minor, and the great Largo theme begins in the relatively inaccessible key of D-flat major. Dvorak takes the scenic route via a beautiful progression of seven deep, broad chords that get us up to D-flat quickly and without incident. We now know that Dvorak originally sketched the famous Largo melody in C, but transposed it to D-flat just so he could use this series of chords as a bridge. Near the end, the motto theme barges in unexpected and full of terror, but the English horn quickly reinstates calm and the movement ends pianissimo with the double basses alone. The scherzo begins with a thunderclap. However, this isn't storm music, but according to the composer, music inspired by the feast and dance of Palpokiwis in the Song of Hiawatha, it seems that Dvorak got no farther than a few preliminary sketches for the Hiawatha opera Mrs. Thurber wanted and decided to put his ideas to good use here. The finale boasts a bold brass theme and two other lovely pastoral melodies of its own, but Dvorak grants visitation rights to the principal themes of the previous three movements early in the development section, and he is thus able to build a thrilling climax by throwing them all together near the end. Even that stately chord progression from the Largo appears. A brief postscript. Jeanette Thurber died in Bronxville, New York in 1946. In her last years, Mrs. Thurber liked to take credit for suggesting to Dvorak the idea for the New World Symphony. Program notes by Philip Husher on Dvorak's Symphony No. 9 from the New World. My name is Rich Caparella. Thanks for listening.